Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great despite a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. Obviously that's always in the background, but this invasion of Ukraine is no joke. This episode is a direct continuation of the last episode on foreign policy, but I'm going to take it in a different direction when I talk about decarbonization as a security um, imperative. Before I get to that, I just want to offer some thoughts on Ukraine. Again, no Russian expert here, but I know a lot of Russian experts, and I think I have a few things to say that are pretty objectively true and might help you kind of make sense of the situation before I get into the main topic today. Uh, The first is, this is a completely black and white issue, right? Russia is an evil, despotic regime. What they just did is pure evil. There is no justification whatsoever under any circumstances for what they did. Putin is a monster, and the world community needs to take the side of the Ukrainians. In the U.S. political context, we have the MAGA fascists, from the former president down to his lackeys on Fox News, coming out pro-Putin. I kind of like seeing this because it's finally... Just yet, well, not finally, but just another example of the right wing in America showing that they are fascist traitors and they are pure evil. There is no low in these people. There is nothing they will not do for power, for shock value, and to just kind of be contrarian. Again, these are people who, if we could rewind the clock, they would be Nazi um, you know, supporters. They are pure fascists. And again, They are in our midst. There are a lot of fascists in America, and we see them. Luckily, they are taking the hoods off, and they are um, making it very clear who they are. But I want to be clear, there are also some idiots on the left. There is no one on the left coming out pro-Putin, right? That We leave that for the right wing. Um, But there are idiots like Tom Friedman and Chris Hedges who have written op-eds recently kind of saying, yeah, of course this is horrible, but... Putin has a point about expansion of NATO, and I think, bullshit, wrong. There is absolutely no justification. We have done nothing to provoke Russia. You know, these we the, the NATO would never do anything directly to invade Russia or to directly threaten Russia. The fact is, having a choice between being part of a, a petro-dictator you know, alliance with an authoritarian thug or being aligned with the West, many of these former Soviet republics... Um, want to be aligned with the West. And that's, by the way, why Putin invaded Ukraine, because, you know, they're siding with the West and he doesn't want someone on his border, you know, who's really an ally of the West. He wants his influence extending out and having his puppet states like Belarus. Right. And so the people on the left who are kind of not making an apology for Putin, but kind of making this gray area, they're full of shit and should be discounted. Now, I want to be clear before moving on here again is that some on the right, even deplorables like uh, Senator Cruz and Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, have come out and condemned 
the invasion. Uh, Romney, you know, has been condemning it very strongly and even basically calling his fellow Republicans traitors who are pro-Putin. So I just want to be clear here. This is a good battle to have on the right. I want the Romneys of the world to win. I don't love Mitt Romney, but obviously he is infinitely preferable than, uh, you know, than the, the MAGA faction. Um, so this is good. It's good to see a war within the Republican Party. I'm, I'm happy about that. I hope the, you know, the, the, the good, you know, or the, the less bad win, but this is a fight they need to have. And the Democrats are, are pretty united on this. The current state of play in Russia, again, changing hour by hour, day by day. Um, the sanctions, though, that have been instituted. I'm going to talk about why they're not as effective as they could be because of the loopholes for energy and oil and gas. But, you know, they're no joke. These sanctions are pretty close to the nuclear option in the sense that, you know, cutting the Russian central bank off is a big, big deal. Right. I mean, this is where you can get crippling economic repercussions. And obviously, they're they're in the process of cutting Russia off from the SWIFT banking system, which is a very, very important kind of international transfers. So Russia is feeling a lot of pain and they're going to feel a lot more pain. Um, the ruble is crashing. The economy's in, you know, in tailspin. And to have your economy sent into a ditch at the start of a major war is disastrous. Right. Remember, Wars for the U.S. have largely been stimulative to the U.S. economy. It's not good policy. It's not saying wars are good for the, you know, for the economy overall because you're spending money you could have spent otherwise on other things and you have long-term budget deficit issues. But in the short term, wars for the U.S. from World War II on have largely been stimulative, right? It's more spending, more production. Um, and so you know, the economy has been chugging along while we've been at war. Russia is going through the opposite right now. They started a major war that's costing a lot of money per day, and their economy is in free fall. So, um, you know, that's a pretty big deal, and uh, things are going pretty badly for the Russians. Now, again, this is less than a week in. Things can change drastically. But my bottom line assessment is just I think Putin vastly miscalculated on this war. I think this is a strategic blunder of the highest proportions from a Russian standpoint. He thought he'd get a quick victory and be able to you know, beat his chest and be the tough guy. Not turning out like that. The whole world is united against him. And this includes, and this is very important, other authoritarian regimes. Turkey, China, Hungary. Right? Turkey is very much close to an authoritarian regime under Erdogan. Uh, China, obviously, with Xi, a full-on, you know, they've been, Russia and Chinese have been cozy, but I think the Chinese are even going, this is fucked up. We don't want to be associated with this. Hungary, which is the closest kind of relative to, to Russia in terms of a, a right-wing authoritarian state, and they're, they're saying no way, and they're backing the sanctions. So Russia is very isolated, and this must be deeply humiliating to Putin. Now, the Ukrainians, on the other hand, are showing tremendous courage and resolve. I mean, there are heroes being made. And again, I don't like to be cavalier about this, right? There's a lot of people dying, but there is something, I guess, heartening about just seeing people who, when a, you know, a, a thug state invades them, are just giving them the middle finger and fighting. And you know what? Again, I don't support the, uh, the offensive wars of the U.S., but, you know, again, if somebody invaded our country here, you know, 
I can, you know, I would hope that I would be as brave as the Ukrainians. And I want to also point out that Biden did a tremendous job of rallying the world. And this is the best of American leadership on full display right now. As, as I mentioned in the last episode, I think overall our military aspect of our foreign policy has been abysmal the last half century. I mean, just, you know, war crimes, crimes against humanity, strategic blunders of epic proportions. However, this right now, the U.S. rallying the world against Russia is an example of the U.S. as a force for good, and it's great to see. You know, we don't get to see the U.S. as a force for, you know, global good in this kind of, at this scale that often. And again, it's heartening. It's great to see, and I have huge respect for Biden. Biden has not always been great on foreign policy. His record is quite checkered, but you can tell he has the seriousness and, you know, the resolve that we want in a leader, and I'm very thankful that he is currently president of the United States. Where do we go from here? I have no clue, right? Putin is a very dangerous man, and now that he is losing, he may act even more erratically and unpredictably. There's, you know, the notes that he's put the the nuclear, you know, forces on high alert. I read a really good article saying how, you know, that's true, but he that was more for domestic consumption because he could have done that, you know, without announcing it. We would have known because we have intelligence to see that. And, you know, this is more to kind of rally his people because he's losing and to kind of create the specter. We all got to come together. It's nuclear high alert, you know, that kind of bullshit. I think the U.S. should do nothing to that. We should just sit back and not, you know, we don't want to escalate this thing, right? So we'll see how Biden responds. Again, the global community is uniting in just the right way for a moral purpose. And here's hoping that Putin ultimately backs down, tries to save face somehow. Um, but, you know, who knows where he's going to go? He's, he's unpredictable. He's erratic. I don't think he's straight out suicidal. But, you know, this could go really badly because it's the fog of war and mistakes can be made and people get trigger fingers, right? So this is a dangerous moment. But again, you know, I think so far the world is doing the right thing. After the break, I'll get to the larger issues of how our dependence on fossil fuels has created the preconditions for this war and why it's a security imperative to decarbonize the U.S. and the global economy. But again, before the break here, I want to give special props to the Ukrainian heroes once again for showing the world that thugs won't be tolerated, that there are people who will stand up to bullies and thugs and fight for their freedom and their sovereignty. So big, big props to the Ukrainian freedom fighters. More after the break. Okay, so the bottom line here is we need to get off of fossil fuels. Three of the most evil regimes in the world are Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. All three engage in massive human rights abuses, have autocratic and repressive governments, and directly threaten both U.S. interests and global stability. What all three have in common 
is that they are major oil exporting nations who benefit from the world's addiction to fossil fuels. If global demand for oil were to fall precipitously and with it the price, these nations would be severely weakened and their ability to fund massive militaries and engage in belligerent behavior would be severely curtailed. Yet we in the U.S. have done relatively little to decarbonize our economy and thereby have allowed all three of these despotic regimes to continue to sow chaos and instability. In the case of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. and its European allies cannot impose the comprehensive crippling sanctions that are warranted because of fears of high oil and gas prices that would result. So case in point here, when the Biden administration announced its sweeping sanctions package last week, many analysts noted that there was a huge exception for all energy-related finance, meaning that any transactions having to do with Russian fossil fuel exports are exempt from the sanctions regime. This makes them less effective. Now, of course, Biden is right to worry about the impact of high energy prices on the U.S. and the global economy, especially with inflation already high. But it is only because we have failed to decarbonize in the last half century since the oil embargoes of the 70s that Russia holds so much leverage. Even in the EU, which has done much more than the U.S. to usher in the age of renewable energy, they too are still incredibly dependent on Russian natural gas, particularly Germany, putting them in a very vulnerable position. So why has the U.S. fared so poorly in weaning itself off of fossil fuels, particularly oil? The reasons are complex, but the usual suspects are mostly to blame, right? Fossil fuel companies and their decades of lies and misinformation and the military-industrial complex that benefits from a chaotic world in which the U.S. is perpetually at war. Now, unfortunately, our political classes have also failed miserably, with both parties to blame, though, of course, the Republicans are much worse because of their absolute fealty to fossil fuel companies and their rampant climate denialism. I do want to point out, though, you know, that think about, you know, Al Gore, the climate champion. He was the vice president under Clinton in the 1990s. I remember in the 1990s, oil, gas prices, it was less than a dollar a gallon. It was like 95 cents when I came out to California in 1996. Other parts of the country, it was 50, 60 cents a gallon. Now, if you can count inflation, it's more expensive, but it's still incredibly cheap. And that was the age of SUVs and rampant, you know, oil consumption. Everyone had the big trucks and the, the rise of suburbia. Now, Clinton had a Republican Congress to contend with, but it's, 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 no, it's telling that even under a pretty committed environmental democratic regime for eight years, that was when prior our addiction to fossil fuels got the most intense. And we did very little to decarbonize. And of course, it got way worse with Bush and Cheney. And then Obama was blocked from doing a lot and failed. So it's just been failure across the board. Oh, of course, I don't want to make false equivalents. The Republicans are way worse but the Democrats have also failed. A recent example highlights the, the continuing failure of U.S. leadership, even under Democrats. Right. So at the end of 2021, the Democrats in the House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi passed a version of Biden's Build Back Better agenda that included approximately $550 billion in funding for decarbonizing the U.S. economy over the next decade, or about $55 billion a year. Right before Christmas, of course, Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, killed the bill. He said that he is open to possibly voting for the decarbonization climate portions of the bill if the bill reduces the deficit. So whether anything will pass in 2022 is anybody's guess. But given that this might be the last chance in many years to pass a sweeping renewable energy bill, the stakes couldn't be higher. 
But weeks before killing the Build Back Better bill, Democrats passed the annual defense authorization bill that totaled nearly a trillion dollars when you include all military-related spending because, again, some of it's hidden in the Department of Energy where we have the money to maintain the nuclear arsenal, etc. Every single penny of that trillion dollars was put on the national credit card. So let's take a moment to examine what that means. It means the U.S. Congress passed a military bill in which every single penny was deficit financed, while only weeks later killing a bill that it was spent 120th of that amount per year on reducing our dependence on fossil fuels because of arguments by Manchin that it would increase the deficit, which were largely bullshit anyway. But this is an example of misguided priorities that is just on an epic scale. Again, 20 times on the credit card for military than you would pay on decarbonization that you then require having to reduce the deficit. This level of, of madness is basically just pure insanity. A country that doesn't have the wisdom after decades of wars in the Middle East and a Russian despot building his military capacity with oil and gas revenue to make the necessary investments to reduce its dependence on fossil fuels is a nation not up to the task of ultimately being a true global superpower. There is no rationale whatsoever for spending so much money on weapon systems, military bases, and troop deployments, and so little on easing the underlying conditions that enrich the world's most despotic regimes. That decarbonizing the U.S. and global economy would not only weaken our foes, but save millions of lives due to lower levels of pollution and help stabilize the climate and protect humanity's future makes our inability to do so that much more insane. And so after the break, I'll talk about what we need to do to try to fix this. Come and try to snatch my crops. These pigs wanna blow my house down. Head on the ground to the next town. They get mad when they come to break my pad. And I'm up in the night who's dead. Yes, I'm the pirate pilot of this ship. If I dip with the ultraviolet dream, hide from the red light beam. Now, don't you believe in the unseen? Look, but don't make the eyes strain. A nigga like me is going insane. Okay, so to move on and kind of what we do from here, obviously, you know, I'm one person, uh, you know, it's a hard to change global economic systems overnight here, but I just have a few thoughts here that I think are instructive. I have always been surprised at how the left and environmental groups have not used the security arguments for decarbonization more forcefully. There was a 2010 movie called Carbon Nation, and they tried to do this a little the movie was actually pretty weak. I ended up watching the whole thing. I think it's on Netflix. But the trailer is great. And I was really excited for the movie when I saw the trailer. I'm going to put a link to the trailer in the uh, the notes for the show. And if you want to go watch the movie, check it out. Although I think it, it does disappoint after a really great, great potential. But in the trailer, there's former CIA director James Wolseley. And there's a point in there where he has his electric car and he's charging it up, and here there's a bumper sticker on the car that says, Bin Laden hates this car. And I thought, wow, that's like awesome. Former CIA director, Bin Laden hates this car, right? Because the security case for decarbonizing is about as straightforward as it can be. 
right? It's something that just everybody can understand, right? If we electrify everything and power the grid with solar and wind, we bankrupt corrupt petrostates and we can't be held hostage to fossil fuel powers, right? It's just, it's just a simple, easy argument. Let's generate our own electricity, get off oil and let them, you know, do their own thing and, and let them go broke because no one's buying their oil. This should be political gold. And now more than ever, I think this case needs to be made. When you add the global instability of the climate crisis, I think this should just be a slam dunk, right? I think if the Democrats try to pass a climate bill this year or, you know, whenever they do, they should call it something like the Global Security Act, right? Because they should put security front and center and they should go on every news program, including right wing news, and say that the best way to weaken the worst actors in the world is to take away their source, source of wealth to bankrupt them, and that we have the power to do it. To say that with $20 a barrel oil, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, aren't going to be starting major wars and causing us headaches. And then if people complain about high gas prices, agree with them and say, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have gas stations anymore and everyone was powering their car on cheap renewable power right at home? I mean, this is this goes right to the conservative id, right? The conservatives, it's, you know, strength, security and independence and what could be more emblematic of that than you know powering your own economy with your own natural resources and not having to be reliant on petrostates that are run by dictators and despots so again what the hell are people waiting for to make this argument i really think we should have been doing this back all the way in the 1970s again during the oil embargoes when we were really literally being held hostage by these powers we should have done it again after 9-11. But, you know, even though it's a half century later, the time is now. We really need to make the security arguments um, front and center, right? The world is in a crisis of both climate catastrophe and the erosion of democracy. And decarbonizing would help both, right? This is the challenge of the era. And I just think the messaging... What do we have to talk about, about, you know, 1.5 degrees and sea level rise and storms and, you know, hotter wind, you know, hotter winters and crops. You know, this is stuff that people kind of care about. Of course, when there's a big wildfire or if their house floods, they care. But that's not that what gets really into the id, right, into the deep recesses of the brain, right? Security. We want to be free from oil. We want to bankrupt the world's regimes. We want to be independent, and renewable energy and decarbonization, that's the ticket. So, like, that should be the framing. And um, I just really feel strongly about that. So after the break here, I'll come back with the antidote and we'll build on that.
Okay, so for the antidote for today, I want to suggest the next time you get into a climate conversation with a right winger, turn it directly to security. Say, hey, why do you want to keep enriching the worst, most despotic regimes in the world with our addiction to oil? Wouldn't you rather bankrupt them? Why do you want to be at the mercy of global oil markets and all that volatility for the U.S. economy? Don't you want us to have a clean, stable, homegrown source of energy? See what they say. If they say, well, that's not feasible, tell them that's bullshit, that we can have it all. We can have electric trucks that are cheaper to power than at the gas station right at your home. Tell them they were, if they were true conservatives, they would be champions of decarbonization and electrification. If they say, well, we should just let the markets decide, tell them that fossil fuels have been heavily subsidized for decades and that we need a national renewable grid and recharging stations to make this happen and that this is where the U.S. government can shine, doing big transformative infrastructure like we did in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Ask them why they don't have faith in America to do great big things. Flip the script on them and stand firm. Be confident. Don't waffle. And put it on them. Put them on the defensive. Say, why are you against making America independent? Why do you want to keep fueling the worst regimes with our addiction to oil? They say, well, we produce enough oil here. See, it's a global market. You know, it doesn't matter that we produce enough oil for U.S. consumption here. We're propping up a global market that has high energy prices, means Iran, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Russia earn lots of money that they can use to kill Americans. Throw them on the defensive and see how they react. If you do end up having a conversation like this with anybody, and you know, I'd really be curious to see how it goes. And so email me and let me know, and maybe we can talk about that in a future episode. Because I think we just got to go for the jugular here, right? Climate is security. It's security in the highest sense. This is the existential challenge to decarbonize the global economy. So with that, everybody, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Uh, Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of the week. Take care and be well. And, you know, my my heart goes out to the Ukrainian people. Um, You know, I I just, you know, it's a a tough, tough situation. And I hope, um, you know, I hope they, uh, you know, I hope they get some justice. When all this plays out, I hope they get some justice. All right, everybody, be well.